0: My name is Kyle, and I am one of the pastors here, and I want to say it's great to worship with you this morning, and that is especially true if you're a visitor, no matter what your beliefs or doubts are. We want to be a church that is here for the convinced and the unconvinced, that's here for the skeptic and the believer. Speaking of skeptics, René Descartes was one of the greatest ever. He was the French philosopher, lived in the 16th century, and he doubted absolutely everything. He doubted everything until he, he, he doubted you know, what he saw, he doubted his relationships, uh, he doubted um, what he had heard. He doubted everything until he got down to the rock bottom truth. Well, I'm thinking, therefore I must exist. I think, therefore I am. It it was a journey that he went on until he got down to this kind of rock bottom place. I've been on that journey some. Different times in different ways, I've had my own doubts. And when I trace those doubts out, and when I go on that journey, and I'm thinking about what would it look like to ditch the faith? What would it look like to leave Christianity behind, to get a new career, to pack my bags? When I do that, every time I come down to this place, I cannot deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, every time, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that keeps me in. It's the resurrection of Christ uh, that, that I hang on to. And you see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that means everything else is true as well. See, I am convinced that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is both intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. And that's what I want to show you this morning from this passage in Luke. But before I do, so, let me pray for us. Lord, as we come to your word on this Easter Sunday, we come from all different types of places. Some of us come very skeptical, doubting that you could have raised from the dead believing that this is all a show and thinking that these are just mere human words. Others of us, that we come here and, and we believe that you exist. We believe that you rose Jesus from the dead. We're just not sure that he rose for us or that could have any impact in our lives and the things that we're struggling with this morning. Still others of us come here excited, confident, rejoicing in the hope that your resurrection brings and longing to hear a word from you, believing that, yes, this is indeed your word, and it is true. God, whatever place we find ourselves in, you know, and you can minister to us. And so we ask that as you overcame the grave Overcome whatever you need to in our lives. That we might hear from you. And relate to you in Jesus Christ. Amen. So here are my two points this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is existentially satisfying. First, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible. I wonder, are you here this morning as a skeptic? Skeptical about what we're doing. Well, I wonder then if you are here and you are a skeptic, if when that story was read, you found yourself at home. Because did you notice everyone in the story who hears about the resurrection the first time is skeptical? Everyone. First, the women come in verse one and they come to the tomb with spices. They come with spices because they expect to find a body there. In other words, they don't expect that Jesus rose from the dead, this guy that they've been following. And then when they get there and there's nobody there, verse 4 tells us that they are, quote, perplexed. It's not just that they didn't expect a resurrection. They can't believe a resurrection. And it's not just the women. The women go back in verse 9, and they tell the apostles and the rest of Jesus' followers all that had happened, all that they had seen. And then in verse 11, how did the apostles and the rest of the men respond? It says that they did not believe. But they considered what they were saying to be silly, frivolous, crazy talk. That, that's, that's the literal translation. Crazy talk is what they were doing. You see, there's this idea, I think a lot of us have this idea that, you know, ancient people were so gullible and unscientific, and they could believe in things like the resurrection of the dead. But we moderns, we, we can't really believe in things like, like a person rising from the dead. I mean, it's all fine and good to have your Easter traditions as a family. And it's great to, to have your Easter brunch as a part of our national or our Western Pastime or heritage, but to actually believe in the resurrection of the dead, I mean that's that's for those silly ancient people who are unscientific. But don't you know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was just as hard to believe in the first century as it is in the twenty-first century. It, Everyone is skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Luke here is inviting us to come with our skepticism and consider the evidence. To come with our doubts. To come and, and to consider the fact that, look, If God has done in Jesus Christ what Christianity proclaims God has done in Jesus Christ, bring salvation to the world, don't you think that that's going to require something that maybe isn't part of our normal everyday experience? That we don't have categories for? So come and invest. Come do what Peter did. Look at Verse 12. Verse 12 tells us that Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and then he went home marveling at what had happened. So what Peter did was was Peter wrestled with the evidence. He, He came and he said, even though he was one of the apostles who did not believe the women, in spite of his doubts, in spite of his skepticism, what he did was he took that skepticism and he went to the tomb to investigate what was going on. This is an invitation for you to do that as well. Let me invite you to my house, on Thursday nights, where we are having a Discover Christianity group. It's a time where you can come with your doubts and your skepticism, and you can investigate the evidence. I would love for you to come. I would love for you to provide space to do what Luke is inviting you to do. Bring your doubts, bring your questions, and let's consider the claims of Christianity together. you say but Kyle i just no that is so far outside of my plausibility structures that i don't even think it's worth my time notice that it says that when peter went home verse 12 says that he was marveling at what had happened he was marveling at what he saw that word marveling could be translated that he was perplexed he was disturbed You know why? Because it didn't fit Peter's plausibility structures either. And so he had to wrestle with it. Like I think we need to wrestle with it. There are three things in this text in particular that I want us to wrestle with this morning the women, the doubts, and the names. First, the women. Did you know that in the first century world, the time in which Luke was writing was a time when women's testimony could not be upheld in court. It was not considered valid. You see, unfortunately, in their day, just like throughout much of history, women were not listened to. That's why, that's exactly why in verse 11, when the women come and tell the disciples, it says that that their words seem to them an idle tale. I mean, they considered them to be being silly, frivolous. So that's the world in which Luke is writing. Let me ask you something. If you were going to make up a religion in this world, if you're going to try to establish the claims of religion in this world, guess what's a problem? As sad as it is, a problem is that the first eyewitnesses were women. So Luke would have every motivation, every motivation to edit out the women. And he would have no motivation to keep them in here as the first eyewitnesses because that would immediately be seen as a, as a way to discredit any of the things that he's saying and any of the things that he's trying to put forward. And so here's the question, why does he include it? See, if Luke wanted to present the strongest case possible, he would edit out the women. But you know why Luke included the women? Because Luke is not trying to present the strongest, most plausible case possible. Luke is trying to present the truth of what happened. And what happened was the women went first. And there was no body in the tomb. Consider that. There is no way that if you were trying to make up a religion to get people to believe you in that day, that you would have made women the first eyewitnesses. And there is no way that you would have included their doubts. I mean, there is a common idea today that goes around in some circles that that the writers, that the composers of the Bible and the ones who who put the canon together, that they were really, and the canon just means the canon of Scripture, the Bible, that the the idea is that those who were doing that were really just doing that to promote their own power and agenda and influence in the world. Uh, That this was really just a first century power play, and there were various groups trying to compete and they wanted to have influence, and so they created this religion. But here's, here's the thing that's kind of interesting. The people who allegedly were trying to promote their own power and influence and make themselves look good, if you read the story, they don't really come off looking very good. Like, the whole time they're failing, left and right, and not believing. And they say here that none of them expected to Jesus to rise from the dead, even though he told them that he was going to be crucified and raised from the dead. They also admit that when they actually saw the evidence from the first time, they were perplexed and didn't believe. And that was true of the women in verse 4 as it was for the men in verse 11. It's true for everyone in the story. I mean, if you were going to try to fabricate a religion... You would not, make, based on your own credentials, you would not make yourself look like a dim-witted knucklehead. I mean, does, does everybody remember when Brian Williams, the most watched evening news anchor on American television, remember when he got shot down in that helicopter in Iraq in 2003? You remember that? Well, that's what he said happened, but it didn't. <laughs> and the truth came out. Now, why would anyone be motivated to say that they were shot down in a helicopter when they were doing, by enemy fire when they were doing coverage in Iraq in 2003? Well, they would say that because that would promote their own heroism and therefore credentials so that you would listen to them right? That's why you fabricate a story. You know why you don't fabricate a story? You don't fabricate a story where you were uncreatious, where you were confused, where you're dimwitted and foolish. So why did they include that in here? Because it was true. Because it happened. And it's not just that they include the women and the doubts that should perplex you, cause you to wrestle a little bit, but it's also that they include the names. Look in verse 10. Verse 10, Luke names three women. He doesn't just say women generally, but he says, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. And he doesn't just say their names. He he says, he says, he, he distinguishes Mary. Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, because there were lots of Marys in that day. Like 50% of the women were named Mary, did you know that? I know. You know, college students, you're writing some papers, right? I'm about to raise your grade from a C to a B or a B to an A, you ready for this? You need to use footnotes, okay? In the ancient world, however, there was no Google. There was, there was no photographs. So how did you footnote something? How did you list your source? The way that you listed your source was you named people in your story. That is Luke's way of footnoting. And you know what, college students, no, don't turn away. Don't look down. <laughs> when you footnote, use primary sources. Primary sources better than second sources. If I read your paper, I don't want to hear Abraham Lincoln said, and then you give me a book from 2003. I want to see an eyewitness, a first account of Abraham saying, or of Abraham writing it. You better go to a primary source. That's how you get an A on your paper, people. We've got some historians in here. They're nodding their heads. When Luke names these people, he's saying these are the eyewitnesses you can go to. The primary sources, the first-hand accounts. That's why he says Mary Magdalene, because you can go find Mary of Magdalena. He says Mary, the mother of James, because you can go find James and find his mom. He says Joanna, who he's already mentioned, was actually married to one of the governor's chief administrators. So you think you could find her? Yeah, you could find her. And you could go ask her. Sometimes, sometimes you have to use secondary sources. So sometimes in the Gospels, there are things like, uh, you know, it'll say like Simon of Cyrene. It'll talk about his sons, Rufus. Well, Why does it mention his sons? Because Simon of Cyrene is dead. And you can't talk to him, but you can talk to Rufus. You can go talk to his son. Think about it. These Gospel accounts, Luke was written some 40 to 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now that seems like a long time to some of you. 40, 50 years. That's like, that's like if Elvis died in 1977, around there. If Elvis started making appearances in Memphis in 1978 or 2003. And you could go back and you could start questioning some people, especially if it named people. Specific places, specific times. But you know, that's Luke. Let's just go with First Corinthians. First Corinthians was written 20 years after this. Now I know college students. Sorry, picking on you. 20 years ago seems like a really long time, but for the rest of us, it does not at all, does it? 2003. I told a story last week from 2003. I told a story today, Brian Williams from 2003. In that story last week that I told, I named names, Ryan Anderson. Ryan Anderson is preaching at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville this morning. You can go look him up. I told you that he was in Nashville. If I told you more details in the story, I would have told you about his roommate, Jay Thomas Hewitt, who I went over to his house. Jay Thomas is a professor at the University of Aberdeen. You could go talk to him as well. You could find out if we had a Bible content exam on the first day at Covenant Seminary. You could find out if I'm there. Yeah, they may be fuzzy on some of the details, like Ryan might deny his Kelly Green shorts or his aviator glasses. They might not know exactly which pub we were at. But I tell you what they would know. They would know whether I was there enrolled in fall of 2003. And they would certainly know whether or not I had raised from the dead or not. 20 years ago. If you were going to fabricate a religion, which I don't recommend, but if you were going to fabricate a religion and the religion that you were fabricating was based upon, you said that that religion was was based upon a revelation of God that was applicable to all people at all times. Let me tell you how to do it. You ready? I don't recommend this. It's like one of those things. This is how you build a bomb, I don't recommend it. This This is how you fabricate a religion, I don't recommend it. You make sure that that revelation happens in private, like Muhammad did, out in the desert somewhere where no one could witness it. No one could verify it or falsify it. Or, or, or you make sure that you receive some golden tablets, like Joseph Smith did. That over four years, no one could see. And, and even when they did come out, because you were translating, and even when they did come out, they were, they were hidden. And then, and then afterwards, they had to be returned to the angel. Uh, you make sure that it's not falsifiable or verifiable. But let me tell you, if you're fabricating religion, let me tell you, the big no-no, let me tell you what to not to do. Don't make it a public spectacle where people could go investigate eyewitnesses. Don't do that. But Luke does that. See, Luke leaves himself open. Because Luke is giving us what happened. I believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible. But it's not just intellectually credible. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is also existentially satisfying. In verse 5, the angels ask the women this very penetrating question, this evocative question. They say, why do you seek the living among the dead? I think most of us live most of our lives seeking the living among the dead. The indie British band Florence and the Machine sings a song called Hunger with This captivating, arresting first line at 17 I started to starve myself and you start off a song like that I'm listening she goes on I thought that love was a kind of emptiness and at least I understood then the hunger I felt and I didn't have to call it loneliness we all have a hunger we all have a hunger Next verse. I thought that love was in the drugs, but the more I took, the more it took away. I could never get enough. I thought that love was on the stage. You give yourself to strangers, you don't have to be afraid. Then it tries to find a home with people or when I'm alone, picking it apart and staring at your phone. We all have a hunger. The lyrics, I think, do a brilliant job of describing the existential hunger and quest that we are all on. We all have a hunger. And they also do a very good job of showing that we try to satisfy that place that hunger for life in places that only bring death. I thought that love was in the drugs, she says. I thought that that, that love was in the drugs and that they would give me life, but the more I took, the more it took away. The more I took the drugs, the more they brought death. Why do you seek the living among the dead? I, I thought that love was on the stage. I thought that I would find my satisfaction there. I thought there I would be quenched of my hunger. I thought that it was on the stage and I would get approval and be comfortable with people and people would love me, but I didn't find it there. It, 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 she even talks about how, how when we stare at our phones, we're on this quest for satisfaction. Scrolling. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever finished a scrolling section session and felt alive? Have you ever finished a scrolling sex, uh, session and felt satisfied? Why do we seek the living among the dead? There's this very honest and sad line in the song where she says, We never found the answer, but we knew one thing we all have a hunger. We never found the answer. And that actually might be the answer to the angel's question Why do you seek the living of the dead? Why do you seek the living of the dead? The reason we seek the living of the dead is because we don't know what we're looking for. And we don't know where to find it. That we are looking for life and we don't know where to find life. And so we're looking in all these places of death But what the angel is saying when he says, why do you seek the living among the dead? What's behind that is saying, don't you realize that what you're seeking is the living one, Jesus Christ. He's the one you want. He's the one who satisfies. See, what we are looking for is Jesus, the living one. We hunger for the one who will put an end to our sin. Verses 6 and 7 go on. The angel goes on. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Rise. Notice that the the angels, these gleaming messengers, which other gospel calls angels, notice that they, they point them not simply to the resurrection of Jesus, but back to his death. And not just death, but death by crucifixion. And notice that they didn't say that, that, that they point to his prediction. And the prediction wasn't just that he would die. The prediction is that he must die. Now, this isn't just something that, that would happen, but that it must happen. Why must it happen? Well, it's very important to realize that crucifixion was a death of a criminal. It was a punishment for crimes. And not just any crime, the worst crimes. It was the punishment for crimes of high treason. Treason against a sovereign. Why must he be crucified? Because he must be punished for crimes against a sovereign. His crimes? No, our crimes. Our crimes. You see, I think we all, deep down, have this sense that the world needs to be set to rights. There needs to be justice in the world. That justice must be done. But let's be honest. What if we were to play the movie of your life here this morning? Everything that you've ever said, thought, done. And what if in that movie, we even had someone do a voiceover? Like, David Attenborough, or something like the guy who does the, the 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 voice on the like the planet. I don't even know the name. I'm coming up with this on the spot. If that guy did the you know your voice, like and, and they did the, but the voiceover was of every thought you've ever had, all the time. Who wants to watch that movie? We all do, but you don't. <laughs> And I don't know if my movie's playing. See, the reality is we know that in the court of public opinion, we would be condemned. We would be canceled. We know that in the court of our own standards, we would be condemned. And how much more so in the court of God's. And I think what we long for is for justice. But we know that someone needs to take away our sin. We know that someone needs to take our movie and they need to edit it. That's why he must be crucified. What if every evil thought evil word, evil deed, instead of showing your evil thought, word, or deed, what was shown was a man hanging on a cross dying for your sin, for my sin. See, I think ultimately, deeply, that's what we want. It's why we try to pay penance so much with a thousand different things in a thousand and a thousand different ways it, it, it's why we still have that haunting feeling of guilt and shame but what we deeply long for what we hunger for is for someone to take our sin away to put an end to it and that's what Jesus did and we long for someone to love us enough that he would do that i thought that love was in the drugs what she looking for i thought that love was on the stage See, what are we hungering for? We are hungering for a love. We are hungering for the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. We are hungering for the one who, while we were sinners, died for us and therefore demonstrated his love for us. And when we get that, then that causes you to sing. Alas, and in my Savior bleed. And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? We long... To be loved in this way. We hunger for one who will put an end to our sin. And we hunger for one to restore and recreate everything that has been lost and broken. I want you to look at verse 3. Luke makes a big deal about the fact that when the women come to the tomb, they did not find Jesus' body. It doesn't say that they did not find Jesus, but it says they did not find his body. Now, why does it say that? I actually wrote this point and realized it was a whole sermon in itself, so I'm going to edit it down. There's so much to say here. The reason, at least one reason, why they said that he did not find his body is because when Jesus suffered the ravages of sin, that happened in his body. All the suffering that Jesus experienced was in his body. Even his emotional suffering came out and broken capsularies in his body. You see, we are psychosemantic unities. There's a very important book that was written in the last 10 years called The Body Keeps the Score. Part of the premise of that book is what it's saying is that when we have traumatic experiences, they get lodged into our body, even if that's emotional trauma. And if we have physically traumatic experiences, guess what? That gets lodged into our psyches. Because we are a a psychic semantic unity. That's what it means to be human. To be human is to be embodied. You don't just have a body. You are a body. You don't just have a body. You are a body. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the human God became when God decided to become a human. And that means Jesus was a body. And for Jesus to be restored, for Jesus to go on, really go on and be redeemed, his body must be redeemed. Here's why this is important. What it means is that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God offers not just a consolation, but a redemption. Let me explain what I mean by that. There's a story about a man named Job. He lost his kids at the beginning of the story. Suffered greatly, lost his wife. At the end of the story, he gets new kids. He gets a new wife. Do you know what that's called? Consolation. That's not redemption. You go to... One time we... Um, trying to think of a good illustration of this. I'm sure it's happened to you one time. You order something, and you pay for it, and then they bring you something else. And when they bring you something else, they say, well, it's of equal value. That might be the case, and that's a consolation. But that's not what I ordered, and that's not what I want. And ultimately, what we all want is a restoration of what has been lost and what has been broken, I don't want a new child who died. I want my child who died. We had some major losses this year. We had some beloved members of this church die. I had a major, I had friends who had a major loss. He had his daughter killed last week. He doesn't need someone like his daughter. To be raised from the dead. He needs his daughter to be raised from the dead. And what this means, what this is saying, is that that when God raises Jesus' body, he's saying that all the places that sin has ravaged in this world and that comes out physically in all of creation, it's saying that God can restore those things and redeem those things and will redeem those things. That's the beauty of the resurrection, and that's what we long for. Consolations are nice, but we want redemption, and the resurrection of the body means redemption. That's what we want. It also means this. If Jesus is bodily raised, then it means that what you ultimately can have with God is a personal relationship and not just private spirituality or a public ritual how do we relate to others in the world? Through your body. We talk about disembodied stuff during COVID and all that things. Nothing is ultimately disembodied. If you talk to somebody through the internet, you type with your hands and you read with your eyes and you see them on Zoom with your eyes. Every form, every form of communication between us and the world is embodied. There's no way around it. Now, some are less embodied, some are more embodied, But they are all embodied. Because the only way that we can relate to one another and to the world is through bodies. And guess what? God took on a body and raised that body so you might relate to him forever. So that you might see him with your eyes. And hold him with your hands. And that he might hold you. You see, when you go to the grave of someone, what you relate to is a memory. And a lot of us, we relate to God like that. We start to relate to God as an idea, as memory, as doctrine. No, Jesus is a person who is embodied and alive. And so when you come to the table later, he put on a body and gives you his body so that you might commune, not with an idea or a doctrine or or, or some kind of private spirituality or just doing a public ritual. No, he calls you to commune with him, his person. And he gives himself to you. Jesus is alive. So let's commune with him. God, we ask that you would convince us of your resurrection and cause us to live in light of it. That we would seek the living one who is above at your right hand in all the ways that he gives himself to us. In Jesus' name, amen.